is a, a great day, and I know Dr. Hawkins will have uh, some great news for us. So would you uh, join me, uh, Scottsdale Bible Church, in welcoming our guest teacher this morning, Dr. O.S. Hawkins. Thanks a lot. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, and thank you for the privilege of being here today and opening the book of God to the people of God. We know these words are always a savor of life unto life to all who will receive them. Let's open our Bibles to the 16th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, the first book of the New Testament, the 16th chapter. And while you're turning, uh, I, I suppose on an old-fashioned Sunday you need an old-fashioned Baptist preacher. So I, I, don't know, I don't know much about the old-fashioned, but you got a Baptist preacher. And... Uh, I want to thank you for this privilege. Some time ago, I was uh, reading devotionally uh, through the Gospels, as I have over the decades of my Christian experience, uh, multitudes of times, as have you. But this particular time, I was taken, stricken by, by something I'd seen time after time after time, but never really saw, if you know what I mean. I was captured by the numbers of times in the Gospels that our Lord Jesus asked questions. And the, the more I noticed it, the more I saw it on every page. He was always asking questions, always probing, questioning, questioning. Didn't matter whether he was talking to somebody privately or whether he was talking to a small group or a larger crowd. He was asking questions. Now, he was omniscient. He had all the answers. And yet he was always asking questions. I, I began to count them. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John recorded for us, there are over 150 questions that escape the lips of our Lord. And we know that John says at the end of his gospel that if everything Jesus had said and done had been recorded, all the books of the world couldn't contain them. And yet we have for us 150 questions that he asked. About the same time I was reading a book on communication and leadership, and it, 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 it presented a pretty interesting uh, premise. It said that, that many people, leadership, th think that leadership is characterized by certain punctuation marks. For example, some people think leadership is characterized by the period, the imperative, the command, go here, go there, do this or do that. And unfortunately, some people lead in that type of a style, characterized by the period. Others think that, that leadership is characterized by the exclamation point, enthusiasm and optimism and expectancy and the ability to, to cast visions and get people to adopt them with enthusiasm and exuberance, the exclamation point. But when you really think about it, more often than not, true leaders are characterized by that symbol when you think about it, that's bent in humility. We call the question mark. And so Jesus was always asking questions. Not because he needed answers, but because he wanted you and I so often to see where we really were in circumstances and situations. And I was so intrigued by this that I listed every one of those questions on legal pads and spent the next several days of my own personal devotional life just Asking those questions as though he were sitting down at the desk with me, asking them of myself, meditating on those questions. And the more I meditated on those questions, the more it began to dawn on me that virtually every epoch of Christian history, 
from what we read about in the Gospels and the death and the burial and the resurrection, the early church in the book of Acts, all the way through the centuries, all the way up to this very day in which we're living, this epoch of Christian history in which we live today. Every epoch of Christian history along the way has had a question from the lips of our Lord for whom and to which it was particularly applicable and so much so that it literally became the question of their time and the question of their epoch. For example, take that first generation, first epoch, spilling over in the second and the third generation of believers. Those early believers we read about in the book of Acts that met there and then that spilled over in the next and the next, they had a question from the lips of our Lord that was really the question of their time. It was the question Jesus asked in John chapter 13, verse 38, when he asked this question, will you lay down your life for my sake? Now think about that. For most of us in this room today, that's not the question of our time. But had we been with those brothers and sisters in that first generational church, that would have been the question of our time. For hundreds upon hundreds upon hundreds of thousands, millions of them in that first epoch of Christian history went to their martyrs' deaths with that question burning in their mind, will you lay down your life for my sake? All of those apostles, say John, went to their martyrs' death with the question of their time burning in their hearts, spilling over into the next generation and the next uh, Ignatius, the pastor of the great missionary church at Antioch, was thrown to the wild animals. Polycarp, the great preacher and pastor of the church at Smyrna, was burned at the stake there in Rome during the days of persecution so that the Caesar could have a lighted path to walk to, walk to the Colosseum to watch his games. He would take Christians and dip them in pitch and tar and hang them on hooks on poles and set them on fire just so he could have a path a lighted path to walk. The catacombs are hundreds of miles of charred remains of believers, headless remains of believers who gave their lives with that question burning in their hearts. Will you lay down your life for my sake? The writer of Hebrews says some were burned at the stake, some were sawn in two. He says the world was not worthy of them. They had a question for their time. Would you lay down your life for my sake? And because they answered it is a part of the reason we're sitting here in Scottsdale Bible Church this morning. And so the church continued to march through the centuries until we come to the next epoch of Christian history. And another question from the lips of our Lord arises that becomes a question of their time. It's the question Jesus asked in Matthew chapter 22, verse 42, when he asked this question. What think ye of the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, had you lived in that second epoch of Christian history, that was the question of your time. Because you see, a, a heresy arose in that early church. Led by, the, by a man by the name of Arius of Alexandria, he began to propound that Christ was really not co-equal and co-existent with the Father, but was in fact created by the Father. And this heresy brought the early church to a place called Nicaea in 325 A.D. Have you ever heard of the Nicene Creed? Of course you have. That issued out of that council of Nicaea. Athanasius 
was the great defender of the faith in those days. And he stood in that council and defended the deity of Christ. And there once and for all, uh, inscribed for all posterity in that Nicene Creed, the church established once and for all that, yes, Christ was co-equal, co-existent with the Father, the same nature of the Father, God himself, deity. And they answered the question of their time, what think ye of the Christ? Whose son is he? And the church then continued to march through the centuries until we come to the next epoch of Christian history. And we find the church in a dark period held in the clutches of the Roman popes. And another question from the lips of our Lord arose. It became the question of their time. It was the question that Jesus asked in John chapter 11, verse 40, when he asked this question, Did I not say unto you that if you would believe... If you would be people of faith and faith alone, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God. And armed with the question of his time and with the truth of the book of Romans, a man named Martin Luther took his 95 theses and nailed them to the church door at Wittenberg, and the glory of God began to fill Europe and spread westward through that great faith movement we call the Reformation, joined by the likes of Calvin and Zwingli and Knox over in Scotland and Hubmeyer and Mansell's Anabaptists and all those others who met the question of their time. Did I not say unto you that if you'd be people of faith and faith alone, if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? And they answered the question of their time. And the church continued to march through the centuries until we come to the next epoch of Christian history. And another question from the lips of our Lord arose. It became the question of their time. It was the question Jesus asked in Luke chapter 18, verse 8, when he asked this question. When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith over the earth? Think about that. When the Son of Man returns, when I come back, Christ asks, will I find the gospel, will I find this faith spread over all the earth? And burdened and armed by the question of their time, men and their wives and children like William Carey and Hudson Taylor and David Livingston left the comforts and confines of home and hearth for faraway places like India and Africa and China and Burma and the modern missionary movement was begun and the gospel began to spread and they have been followed by millions of folks who've gone to the ends of the earth answering that question, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? And the church continued to boldly march through the centuries until we come to the next epoch, around the first part of the 20th century. And another question from the lips of our Lord emerged, particularly in the Western world for the Western church, and became the question of their time. It was the question Jesus asked in John chapter 6, verse 67, when he asked this question, Will you also go away? Will you also go away? And we watched as one mainline denomination after another, after another, after another, went away from the founding doctrinal truths of their forefathers, and the founding theological truths of the Word of God to follow after liberalism and her twin children and pluralism and inclusivism. And thank God there, were, there was a remnant of those like you, like us, who did not go away, who faced the question of our time. But now we live in a new epoch of Christian history, a 21st century. And I'm convinced there's a new question that has arisen for the church of Jesus Christ. A question that is as much the question of our time as was this question, will you lay down your life for my sake was of the early church? 
or any of these other questions in Christian history. It's the question we're going to find in our text in a moment in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15, where our Lord asks this, Who do you say that I am? I'm convinced that's the question of our day. In a world of pluralism, in a world where there are people that are just saying there are all these different ways, the, for believers, this is the question of our day. Who do you say? Not who do you think? Who do you wish me to be? Who do you say? Who do you profess? Who do you say that I am in a pluralistic world all around you? You know, there are really only two kinds of leadership. It doesn't matter whether that leadership's in the home, in the church, down at the office, wherever it is. There are only two different kinds of leaderships, really. There are those who lead by what one might call public consensus. Now, they don't, they don't take a stand on an issue until they, they get all their polling data in and see what the consensus of all the people is, and then they'll lead that way. But there's another kind of leadership. It's those who lead by personal conviction. In other words, down in the very core of their being, they have some convictions about what is right and what is wrong, and they lead that way, come what may. You see, people who lead by public consensus lead people to do what those people want to do. But people who lead by personal conviction lead people to do what those folks need to do, particularly as it's related to the Word of God. Now, in the context of our, cha of our text, Matthew 16, Jesus knew how prone those disciples were going to be, and I might add how prone you and I would be, to leave our personal convictions for the convenience and the acceptance tomorrow when we get back out in the culture of public consensus. And so what did he do here in Matthew 16? He took the disciples away from the Galilean crowds. They had been immersed down there in the Sea of Galilee, around the northern shore of the Galilee. Multitudes of folks had come out. They had been expending themselves physically and emotionally and spiritually. And he took them away from the Galilean crowds. And he marched them 25 miles north all the way up to the headwaters of the Jordan, all the way up to the foothills of Mount Hermon, all the way up to that place that Philip had built in honor of the Caesar we call Caesarea Philippi. And he got them up there that night around the fire. And here's where we pick up our text in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13. Now when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do People, who do, your translation may say men, it's anthropos, properly translated here in the ESV. It's generic, men, women, boys, girls. Who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Now, do you see that in verse 13? That is the question of public consensus. What's the polling data saying? What's the consensus out there? Who do the people say that I am? And we are living, unless we haven't been aware of it lately, we're living in a world where what men say and what people say has become far more important than what God says in many people's minds. And so the disciples answered. Some say you're John the Baptist, others Elijah, others Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Now, do you see that? That is the question of personal conviction. What about you, he asked. 
You and you alone. You and you only. You, 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 you. It's plural here. You. Who do you say that I am? And God bless Simon Peter. We rag on him a lot. (laughs) Call him impulsive and all these other things. But here he's moved by the Holy Spirit. And he replies, you are O Christos, the one and only anointed one, Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. So I have two brief points today. The first one is this in verse 13. The question of public consensus. He gathers them around the fire and he asks them this question. Who do the people say that I am? Here's the question of public consensus. And so look what these disciples do. They get in a little holy huddle. They've they've been down there in the crowds. They've been taking taking note of what people are saying. They've been touching those people's lives. So one of them pulls out his little dad and he says, well, I've been hearing that they're, they're saying you're John the Baptist. Well, now John the Baptist, if you recall, had recently lost his head, literally. They're saying you've got the spirit of John the Baptist in you. Uh, Jesus preached his first sermon and said, except you repent, you'll perish. That was the message of John the Baptist. The message he preached down in the Jordan Valley of repentance. They're saying you're John the Baptist. Another spoke up and interjected and said, no, that's not, that's not what I'm hearing. I'm hearing they're saying you're Elijah, the man of prayer. By the time we come to Matthew 16, they've been living with him long enough to see him do so much by prayer. Another one interjected and said, not what my polling data shows. It shows that they're saying you're Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. Later they would see him weep at the tomb of Lazarus. And then they'd see him weep on Palm Sunday Road with a different Greek word that meant deep, loud sobs. He was weeping so much on the back of that donkey that you could have heard him two or three blocks away. They're saying saying you're Jeremiah. Another interjected and said, no, that's not what I hear. I hear they're just saying you're just another one of the prophets. Things haven't changed much in 2,000 years. Ask our Islamic friends who he is today, and they'll tell you he's just another one of the prophets. Just not as great as their last one, they would tell you, Muhammad. Now, what happens when we live in a culture that never gets out of verse 13? In other words, it's consumed with what the people say. It's consumed with what men say. When we live in a culture that's, that's far more interested in what men say than in what God says, it always gives rise to two things. Always. Pluralistic compromise and political correctness. And you can take those right over into our church world. Because when you live in a culture that begins to be more interested in what men say than what God says. And unless we've awoken awoken in this uh, Western culture, we're living in that culture today where what men say is far more important than what God says in the minds of most. We shouldn't be surprised that it gives rise, one thing, to pluralistic compromise. Pluralism. Uh, we, always, we all know what the pluralists say. The, they, just, they just say there, there is a plurality of ways you get to heaven. In other words, we're all going to the same place, the pluralists tell you. 
We're just going on different roads. So Hindus go on one road, and Buddhists go on one road, and Muslims go on one road, and, and those Church of Christ folks go on one road, and Roman Catholics go on one road, and Mormons go on one road, and Jehovah's Witnesses go on one road. We, we born-again believers go on one road, and we're all going the same place. We're just going on different roads to get there. That, 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 that emerges into a culture when what men say is more important than what God says. And I'll tell you something else it does. Political correctness. Now, in, in the church world, to be politically correct out there in the culture is to be what we might call an inclusivist. Now, inclusivists will tell you that, yes, Jesus died on the cross. And because he died on the cross for the sins of the world, everybody is included in the atonement. So you don't have to be born again or saved or whatever terminology you use to describe the new birth because everybody's included anyway. Now, why should the church be so concerned about these two things? Pluralism and inclusivism. Because they dramatically alter the nature of our faith. But what does pluralism do? This idea there are all these It affects our doctrine, what we believe, our message. Because you see, if you believe in that, you, why would you need to believe in such things as the virgin birth of Christ? Or the doctrine of his sinless life? Or his vicarious death? Or his bodily resurrection? Or any of the other great doctrinal Christological truths of the Word of God? You see, pluralism affects our doctrine, what we believe, our message. What does inclusivism do? This idea that everybody's included in the atonement, it affects our duty. How we behave as believers. Our mission in life. Because you, if you believe everybody's included in the atonement, there are two things you don't need in the church anymore. You don't need evangelism. You don't need missions. So why should it startle you? Do you go to the headquarters of some of these major mainline denominations that left the faith of their fathers years ago? There are two things you don't find there. An evangelism division or a missions division. Because they dramatically alter the nature of our faith. Listen, this idea that Christ is who he said he was, the way, the truth, the life, the only way to eternal life, is not some Christology that, that has made in America stamped on it like a lot of this world would have people believe. It's a Christology that has made in heaven stamped on it. It got to us through the life of Jesus Christ who knew no sin but became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him who demonstrated his own love toward us in that while we were still yet sinners, Christ died for us. It got to us by the sacrifice and the martyrdom of millions of believers across these centuries who've given their lives for this glorious truth. And today, you and I are stewards we are stewards. We hold this glorious doctrine in our hands. The question of public consensus. Who do people say? is not the question for the church. It's not the question of our time. And so we come secondly and finally to the question of personal conviction. In verse 15. The question of our time. Who do you say that I am? This issue of the exclusivity of the gospel of Christ. Whether Jesus who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father unless he comes through me, John 14, 6. The exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was reading a book on the plane coming over here yesterday about, about the growth and the infiltration of radical Islam into cultures around the world, even in the Western world. 
it, it began to dawn on me afresh and anew that the only real, true, lasting antidote to that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news of the Lord Jesus Christ that can transform a man's heart. This is the question of our day, church. Jesus asked us the question, and it's much the question of our time as any of those questions in the epics before us. Who do you say that I am? You see, there's, a, there's an alternative to pluralism and inclusivism. It's what we call the exclusivity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That he is who he said he was, the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father unless he comes through me. Now, wherever folks drink coffee here in your area, you just saddle up in the morning when they're over there drinking coffee on Monday morning, and there's a bunch of people over at that table next to you, and they're talking, they're drinking coffee. Just saddle up and say, excuse me, didn't want to interrupt, but just wanted you to know Christ is the only way to heaven. If you, there is no other way except through Christ. You might as well go on out there to the airport and get on a plane to Madrid and get you a red cape and get down the bull ring, put it in front of Raging Bull, because that smacks in the face of a culture that's gone awry and is more interested in what men say than what God says. But this is the question of our time. You remember in the aftermath of 9-11, those first few days, short weeks after that, it, it, it looked like some mercy drops of revival were falling on the church. People came back to church in bigger numbers, came to prayer meetings. The president, whom I know and love, called a, a, a big prayer service at the National Cathedral. I watched it on television there in Dallas. All the big muckety-mucks in Washington were there. The, the, the cabinet, the Joint Chiefs, the Supreme Court, the Senate, the, 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 the House. They were all gathered there in the National Cathedral in that prayer service. And we began to sing that great Reformation hymn, My Heart Leapt for Joy, when I heard those folks standing and singing. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. I said, man, I can't wait till we get to that third verse. This is going to be fantastic. We sang the first and the second and the, we skipped the third. <laughs> Went on the, we sang all those verses about God. We skipped the third verse. You know what it says? Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who this might be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord Sabaoth, the Lord of hosts is his name, from age to age the same, and he must win the battle. But we live in a culture where he has little place anymore. Back to Caesarea Philippi. When Jesus asked this question in the language of the New Testament, it's emphatic. It just means the you is placed in the front of the sentence structure. So he looks and he says, what about you? You and you only. You and you alone. You and nobody else. You, 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 you. What about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter answers, it's beautiful because he does the same thing. It's emphatic. He puts the you at the beginning of the sentence structure. And here's the way Peter really answers. He says, you, Lord, and you alone. You and no possibility of anybody else. You and you alone. You, Lord, are the Christ. To use a strong, definite article. The one and only Christos, anointed one, Messiah. You and you alone. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What motivated Simon Peter? who made that great confession at Caesarea Philippi 
to die the kind of martyr's death he did. As you know, tradition tells us he was crucified, perhaps along with his wife. She first, so he watched the agony of it. And then when it came time for him to be crucified, if you remember, he made a strange request of his executioners. He said to them, I'm not worthy to be crucified like my Savior. And so he requested to be crucified upside down. And that's why if you go into a liturgical church and maybe you see in stained glass along the way, the, the marks, the signs of the apostles, Peter's sign is always what? An inverted cross, which symbolizes the type of martyr's death in which he died. What motivated Simon Peter to die a death like that? Did he give his life because he believed in pluralism? All these different ways? You got, no, he gave his life because he believed what Christ said, that there was no other way to eternal life for people except through Jesus Christ. And would to God we could bring that big old fisherman up here on this platform today and let him stand here and give testimony to you today of the exclusivity of Christ. You don't have to wonder about what he'd say. He'd say the same thing to you that he said in Acts 4.12. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved. I would to God. What, 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 what about Paul, who gave you almost half your New Testament? Remember how horrified we were a few, few, sometime back when those insurgents in Iraq chopped the heads off of those journalists and those other captives they had? That's how Paul met his martyr's death. He was beheaded probably outside the city gates of Rome. What motivated Paul to die a martyr's death like that? To lay his head willingly down on that chopping block? Did he give his life because he believed in inclusivism? No, he gave his life because he believed Christ was the only way to eternal life. And would to God I could bring him up to this platform today. His old body, by the time he met that martyr's death, had been broken and beaten. He had been stoned at Lystra and left for, for dead. He had been shipwrecked at Malta, beaten over and over with a cat of nine tails with 39 lashes. He, I would to God I could bring Paul up here today to get him to testify to you of this message of gospel, of, of exclusivity. He would say the same thing to you. He said in the first letter he ever wrote when he came back from the first missionary journey, in the first chapter of that letter, Galatians 1, when he said, Should we or some angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you? Let him be accursed. I wish I could bring John up here, exiled on Patmos over 90 years of age. To testify to the exclusivity of the gospel of Christ. He'd say the same thing to you. He said in that little epistle in your New Testament he wrote. 1 John in chapter 5. When he said, he that hath the Son hath life. And he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. The wrath of God abides on him. But you know when we say in this culture that Christ is the only way to eternal life. You know what we're called? Narrow-minded. Be thankful you're not a Southern Baptist because folks think we're so narrow-minded that a gnat can stand on the bridge of our nose and peck out of both eyes at the same time, <laughs> which is pretty narrow-minded. <laughs> but that's the nature of truth when you really think about it. All truth, Mathematical truth is narrow. It's the nature of all truth. Mathematical truth is narrow. Two plus two equals four. 
Back there in kindergarten, first grade, and I'd put five on there. A teacher would get that big red pencil, put that X. used to burn me off because I was so close. <laughs> but, but mathematical truth is narrow. Two plus two equals four. Scientific truth is narrow. Water freezes at what? Now, y'all don't really know this probably out here, so let me educate you. <laughs> Water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Now, you, go, you get over where I live, when winter starts coming on, you take a glass of water when it's 35 or 36 degrees, and you set it out on your porch, and you sit out there and wait for it and watch it freeze when it's about 35 degrees. Something else will freeze over before that water does because water freezes at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. That's pretty narrow. Geographical truth is narrow. I live in Texas. We're bordered by Oklahoma by the, by the Red River, not the, not the Sabine River. Historical truth is narrow. John Wilkes Booth shot Abraham Lincoln in the Ford Theater in Washington. He didn't stab him in the back in the Bowery in lower Manhattan. So why should we be surprised that theological truth is narrow? Jesus said what in the greatest sermon ever preached? Enter in where? By the narrow way. Because straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. And few there be that find it. Friend, we have a question for our time. We have a question that the church must rise up and answer. In a culture that's gone awry, in a culture that's far more interested in what men say, who, Jesus asked, who do you say that I am? As I close, I think about that grand and glorious day we read about in the apocalypse. When all the redeemed of all the ages are all gathered around the throne of God, every tongue and tribe and nation and people singing praise unto the Lamb of God. Where is our hope in that day? The speculation of modern theology and secularism will not do. Let me hear again that old text. Neither is there salvation in any other. Let me sing again that old song like we've sung today. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And in the midst of that beautiful scene, I look, and here come the patriarchs of the Old Testament. They come walking by, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. I've studied so much about their lives. I've written a book on leadership on their lives. And here they come. They come walking by, but I'm not one of them. And then I look, and here come the sweet psalmist of Israel, David and Asaph and the sons of Korah. I've memorized so many of those psalms, sung so many of those psalms to the Lord. They've comforted me in times of such distress. And here come the sweet psalmist of Israel walking by. But I'm not one of them. And then I look, and here come these men, shoulders back, the prophets of the Old Testament, Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Daniel and all those folks who pointed to Christ. They come marching by, but I'm not one of them. And then I look and here they come, the glorious apostles of the New Testament. Andrew and Peter and James and John, the sons of thunder and Philip and Nathaniel without guile, Bartholomew and Thomas. They all come marching by, but I'm not one of them. And then I see a crowd of people coming, the martyrs of the church. James put to death at the sword of Herod and those other apostles and Polycarp and, and Ignatius and, and uh, 
Perpetua, that young mother put to death at Carthage, and Savannah Rolla burned at the stake in Florence, and Tyndale and Huss, and on and on and on, the martyrs of the church come marching by. But I'm not one of them. And then I look, and behold, I see a multitude of people, which the Bible says no man can answer and number. Who are these? These are they whose robes have been washed white in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And I belong to that glorious throng of the redeemed. Look and live. Wash and be clean. The songwriter said there's a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunge beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stains. We have a question for our time. It's not the question, will you lay down your life for my sake? It's not the question, what think ye of Christ? We settled that 1,700 years ago. It's not the question, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith? The gospel's being preached over the world. But we have a question for our day. Who do you say that I am? Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. Let's bow our hearts together as we pray. For some of you in this room, that may be not just the question of, your time, of our time, but the question of eternity. Who do you say that I am? Would you answer with Peter to say you're the Christ, the Son of the living God? And would we go from this place with that question of our time burning in our hearts as much as those early believers went with their question burning in theirs? to tell this world that Christ is the only way, the only hope, the one for whom they've been looking and longing, the only one to fill the void of life. Father, seal these words in our hearts, and we'll praise you for it and give you the glory, for you alone are worthy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.